Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of They Walk Among Us a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part two of a two-part story. Please listen to season three, episode one, for more details on this case. If you would prefer to listen to our podcast without adverts and four days before everyone else, you can for just $3 a month head on over to patreon.com forward slash theywalkamongus for more details. To keep up to date with news on the podcast, you can follow us on our social media accounts. We're on Facebook and Instagram under They Walk Among Us podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast. Listener caution is advised as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Ronald Cray, Prisoner Number 058110 Reginald Cray, Prisoner Number 058111 Report to the Life Sentencing Review Committee The Cray twins have been located in Sea Wing Parkhurst since January 1975 and are both clearly content to remain there for the foreseeable future. Apart from the fact they are both settled and have carved a niche for themselves in the role of godfather, their positions in the inmate hierarchy are less threatened than they would be with the younger emergent gangsters on normal location. Although they have in the past voiced the view that they expect to serve 12 years, they demonstrate some degree of recognition of the reality of their situation by recently updating their estimate to 15 years. Interestingly, it has often been noted that when one brother is to the fore, the other adopts the less dominant role and vice versa. Clearly both men wield a considerable degree of influence with the wing and continue to be perceived as extremely dangerous, especially Ronald Cray because of the psychotic nature of his mental state. In some respects, I feel Reginald Cray's opportunity to make progress is restricted because of his loyalty to his brother, yet at the same time, I cannot conceive them ever agreeing to go their separate ways. Senior Probation Officer, name redacted, June 8th, 1977. Ronald Cray, Prisoner Number 058110. Extract from a report on prison conduct. Ronald Cray remains an active and predatory homosexual and cares little who knows it. He undoubtedly shelters beneath the umbrella thrown over him by his twin brother and makes occasional forays from this protection to reassert his status in the minds of lesser men. One would guess that this behaviour pattern has existed for the twins since they were children. 
The impact of the Cray twins in the prison community remains considerable. They certainly influence life in Sea Wing to a large degree and maintain contacts in other parts of the prison to a greater extent than they should theoretically be able to. Undoubtedly, this is more due to their history and the clan loyalties of the East End criminal subculture than to their present activities. The twins entertain hopes of an eventual transfer to Kingston, but agree that Parkhurst and specifically Sea Wing is the best place for them now. They are happy enough and cause little bother, and I agree with them that they are best left where they are for the next few years. Author Redacted, July 20th, 1977 After Reggie Cray's wedding in 1965, Ronnie's mental health continued to decline and he suffered from both bouts of crippling depression and pathological rages. Ronnie would take medication, but over time his effects wore off. He kept an armoury fully stocked which included two Browning machine guns and even attempted to purchase some limpet mines and hand grenades. He was paranoid and convinced everyone was out to get him. It wasn't until the Richardson brothers appeared on the scene, Ronnie became laser-focused on causing as much carnage as possible. The Richardson brothers, who were based south of the River Thames, were worlds apart from the Crays and their East End beginnings. Raised in a middle-class family, Eddie and Charlie Richardson were highly intelligent, but it wasn't their business interests that gained them notoriety. They ran a scrapyard in Brixton, nothing out of the ordinary, but the brutal violence they inflicted on their rivals set them apart. Along with the beatings which were common, they would utilise pliers and electricity to get what they wanted, either pulling out a victim's teeth and nails or electrocuting them. On some occasions, they also employed a nail gun to pin their victim's appendages to the floor or wall. In an event that would drive Ronnie to murder, the Richardsons and the Crays met to discuss how both gangs could continue their business without it descending into a bloodbath. Although the talks broke down rather quickly at the Astor Club in Mayfair, the meeting was ending amicably before George Cornell, a member of the Richardson crew, promptly said to Ronnie, Take no notice of Cray, he's just a big fat puff. It seemed like retribution was on the cards, and Ronnie wanted blood. Furious at the slur, Ronnie's reckoning couldn't be unfurled on the entire Richardson gang as they ended up in a shootout on March 8, 1966 with another gang at Mr Smith's, a pub in Catford. This resulted in the group almost decimating themselves and an affiliate of the craze, Richard Hart, who was shot and killed in the process. Mad Frankie Fraser, a member of the Richardson gang, would eventually be charged for the murder of Richard Hart However, he was later found not guilty. The police were again met with a wall of silence. However, rumours circulated that it was George Cornell who pulled the trigger. George had managed to escape being caught by police, but instead of going into hiding, he travelled north to visit a friend in hospital, far from the safety of South London and only a mile from the Cray's home. What was left of the Richardson gang were rounded up and arrested, and with Eddie Richardson seriously wounded, it would be George Cornell who would feel the brunt of Ronnie's rage after he was eventually shot in cold blood. George Cornell, who grew up with the twins in the East End, had spent time behind bars for a number of violent assaults. He had dabbled in blackmail and pornography before falling in love and marrying a woman from South London. Shortly after moving there, he then became the Richardson's go-to man when they wanted to torture someone for information. There was no love lost with the craze, as they believed George had deserted them. Despite being a popular pub near Mile End Road, the Blind Beggar, a large Victorian building, was almost empty while 38-year-old George Cornell sat at the corner of the bar. Ronnie was informed of his location and so travelled there with his driver John Dixon and his Scottish minder Ian Barry. Ready to prove they were prepared to do whatever it takes to the Richardson gang or any opposition, Ronnie and his minder walked into the pub in Whitechapel 
on March 9, 1966. They entered about 8.30pm while The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore by the Walker Brothers was playing on the jukebox. George turned around and reportedly said, well look who's here. Ronnie pointed his 9mm Mauser pistol at George Cornell's head and pulled the trigger. Ian Barry was in shock. He produced a gun and fired a few shots into the ceiling so witnesses would keep their heads down and not be able to get a good look at them. George Cornell held on to life but died at 3am the next morning in the Royal London Hospital on Whitechapel Road. Even though police arrived shortly after the shooting, not one of the witnesses implicated Ronnie or Ian. The pair drove to a pub at Stoke Newington called The Coach and Horses, where Ronnie scrubbed the gunpowder burns from his hands and burnt his clothes. He would later say of the incident, I felt fucking marvellous. I have never felt so good, so bloody alive, before or since. Reggie was again the one who had to clean up the mess his brother had created. George Cornell's widow knew that Ronnie was involved, and showed up at their mother's flat one night shouting and screaming. She was beside herself and wasn't afraid of the twins. Aware of the attention George's murder had stirred up, Ronnie and Reggie went to Morocco, but returned three weeks later after things had died down. Arriving back in London to find their protection money was no longer being collected, the brothers needed to do something to raise the morale of their gang, so decided to break out an acquaintance from prison. Some say this was to highlight the prisoner's plight. Others believe this was a show of strength on behalf of the craze to prove they could get anyone out of prison. However, no one truly knows their motives apart from Reggie and Ronnie. Frank Mitchell, otherwise known as the Mad Axeman, was a prisoner in Dartmoor and had served time with Ronnie in Wandsworth. He was an imposing figure at 6 foot 4 inches tall and weighing 17 stone. He had been placed in Rampton and Broadmoor psychiatric hospitals and had escaped both. On the run he broke into nearby homes and attacked the occupants with an iron bar and a meat cleaver. He was eventually captured and sentenced without an expected release date. He was sent to Dartmoor prison but surprisingly became docile with his behaviour improving dramatically. He bred budges in his cell, and due to his good behaviour, he was transferred to the Honour Party, a group of prisoners allowed to work outside on the moors. He would pop down to the local pub and even the pet shop to purchase more budges. Possibly due to his size, nobody thought to challenge him. He had more freedom in Dartmoor than any other prison, but as the Home Office never provided a release date, He looked to be behind bars indefinitely. When the craze discovered this, they planned to break him out of jail temporarily so he could write to the Home Secretary to plead his case. If a release date was granted, he would return to prison. On December 12th, Frank Mitchell left his cell to work outside, repairing some fence posts with four other prisoners. Around 3.30pm, He asked a guard if he could walk across the field to feed some wild ponies. Carl was waiting for him. He was driven from the prison to a flat on Barking Road, owned by an associate of the craze called Lenny Dunn. Frank spent the following two weeks writing letters to the press, explaining the injustice that he believed had befallen him, asking the Home Secretary for leniency. While there, the craze arranged for nightclub hostess Lisa Prescott to keep him company. In awe of the woman, Frank declared he was madly in love and they were going to get married. While he was free from prison, he suddenly realised that he had even less freedom in his new flat and when the Home Secretary announced that there could be nothing more done until Frank handed himself in, Frank began to get agitated. News was getting out that the craze had broken him out of prison and with Frank believing that by going back he could get a release date and marry this new woman in his life, this became a concern for the twins. If Frank returned, he could implicate them in his escape. The Mad Axeman began to threaten the twins, so Reggie and Ronnie explained they would be willing to take him to somewhere secret in the countryside if he calmed down. Frank agreed. On Christmas Eve in 1966, a van arrived to pick him up, 
but he was never seen or heard from again. To this day, Reggie and Ronnie state that Frank is still out of the country, but have never said where. Despite their attempts to boost the morale of fellow gang members through the release of Frank Mitchell, rumours began to circulate that Frank may have met his end at the hands of the Craze or one of their accomplices. A few years later, Albert Donahue would eventually speak up in court during a trial in 1969, alleging that Frank Mitchell was in fact shot by an old friend of Ronnie and Reggie's, Freddie Foreman. Albert Donahue said that he was the driver who picked up Frank Mitchell. He claimed that Frank's body was dismembered, his brain was cut out, and even went so far as to say that when the Mad Axeman's heart was removed, the gang found the three bullets that killed him. The twins had made no progress with lifting the firm's spirits, however the police were also making no headway into the deaths of Frank Mitchell and George Cornell. As things seemed to be getting back on track financially for the twins, Reggie's entire universe came crashing down before him. After a few months of marriage, his wife had been struggling with the new restrictions placed upon her. She was given a car but couldn't drive. She was made to stay at home but was always watched by a member of the firm. And though she had a job before the marriage, she wasn't allowed to go back to work. Unable to cope, she returned to her parents, then received treatment for depression. In June 1967, after swallowing a cocktail of drugs, Frances Cray was dead. She was only 23 years old. Although Ronnie had his problems, his mental health issues looked to be somewhat under control. The tables had turned, now Reggie was on the edge. Devastated by the loss of his wife, Reggie's grief turned to anger and he went off the deep end. He began to drink heavily. He shot two men in the legs and attacked another with a knife before slashing their face. Cracks between the two brothers began to show. Ronnie would gloat that he was the harder of the two as he had killed George Cornell and he would taunt Reggie that he was going soft. Reggie took the bait. Jack McVitie was also known as Jack the Hat due to the array of headwear which he wore to hide his boldness. Jack struggled with drink and drugs. It was likely this that played some part in him stealing money from the twins. To win back their favour, he was asked to end the life of Leslie Payne, who Ronnie believed had become a police informant. Jack McVitie was provided with an advance and a gun, but failed to go through with the hit, as Leslie Payne wasn't in when Jack paid him a visit. He never killed Leslie Payne, or gave the craze their money back. He was becoming a liability. Ronnie was accusing Reggie of being weak for not taking punitive measures, and shortly after Jack wandered into the Regency in Hackney with a sawn-off shotgun threatening the locals. Now something had to be done. Ronnie claimed that he was going to end the life of Jack the Hat, but Reggie was sure he was going to get there first. On October 29th, 1967, Reggie spent the evening drinking heavily under the belief that Jack would appear at the Regency later that night. Armed with a revolver, Reggie arrived, however Jack was nowhere to be found. Infuriated, Reggie left the Regency deciding to entrust the weapon with Anthony Barry, one of the two brothers who ran the club. Reggie arrived at a party nearby where Ronnie was disappointed to learn that his brother had been unable to go through with the murder, so, frustrated, he asked Ronnie Hart, the twin's cousin, to head to the Regency to request Anthony Barry bring him the gun. While Ronnie Hart was off on his duties, Ronnie Cray asked Christopher and Tony Lambriano to find Jack McVitie and bring him to a basement flat on Evering Road in Stoke Newington. It wouldn't be long before they returned with Jack in tow, who was expecting to turn up to a party. He was heavily intoxicated and demanded more booze before asking, where are all the birds? An argument erupted and Jack McVitie began fighting with the twins. Ronnie said, come on Jack. Stand up like a man. Jack replied, Yes, but I don't want to die like one. Before pleading, let's talk then. Reggie and Ronnie let Jack go. As Jack tried to flee up the stairs, he was grabbed by Ronnie, who pulled him back into the room and threw him on the sofa. The two began arguing, but Jack was unaware that Reggie was standing behind him. 
Jack McVitie's life should have ended that moment when Reggie Cray pulled the trigger, but the gun didn't go off. Now realising that his life was in danger, Jack tried to jump out of a window. His head and shoulders made it, but not the rest of him. His attempt would have worked had it not been for the twins grabbing him by the legs and pulling him back in. Ronnie held Jack's arms behind his back. Jack kept saying, Leave off, Reg. Leave off. As Ronnie said, Go on, Reg. Kill him, Reg. Ronald Bender attempted to fix the gun that hadn't fired, but as it still wouldn't work, he passed Reggie a large carving knife that he had been carrying. Reggie stabbed Jack in the face and stomach, before thrusting the blade through his neck numerous times after the victim fell to the ground. Reggie then pushed the knife so hard he impaled Jack to the floor. Jack McVitie had been stabbed more than 50 times. His body was wrapped in a bedspread and taken to a waiting car. The knife and the gun were thrown into a canal on Queensbridge Road. Only the craze and members of the firm had witnessed the murder and it was unlikely that anyone would be mentioning the incident to the police other than Jack's widow who reported him missing. It was said that the Lambrianu brothers, along with Ronald Bender, another firm member, attempted to dispose of the body, only for one of them travelling with the corpse to run out of petrol on the way. Unsure of what to do, they dumped the body in a nearby churchyard. The twins eventually heard what they had done, and dispatched Freddy Foreman to retrieve the body and dispose of it. After Jack McVitie was stabbed to death in October 1967, it was no surprise that people weren't talking. Rumours surrounded the eventual fate of his body. Some say he was eaten by pigs, others say that his body was burned in a furnace, buried in concrete or thrown out to sea. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to scentair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at scentair.com. Scotland Yard were aware of the craze 
their influence and their criminal activities. Only a month before Jack McVitie met his end, a new task force led by Leonard Nipper-Reed was set up to bring the craze to justice. Detective Superintendent Leonard Ernest Reed earned his nickname due to his small stature and history as a police boxing champion. Around 5 foot 7 inches tall, he may not have been an imposing figure, but the 42-year-old had made a name for himself playing a role in the investigation of the great train robbery that took place during August of 1963. Along with his team of just over a dozen detectives, they moved to a separate office under the pretense they were investigating a murder in Northern Ireland to ensure that there wouldn't be leaks in the investigation and only the most senior staff at Scotland Yard were aware. The craze had so many officers on their side, it was nearly impossible to know who to trust. Leonard Reed had been part of the initial investigation into the craze, but after Ronnie's name came up as the gangster said to be involved with Lord Boothby in 1964, the investigation into the twins was put on hold and none of the evidence gathered could be used. Detective Superintendent Reed set out to find everything he could about Reggie and Ronnie and even made attempts to interview their associates and previous victims, despite the craze making it quite clear what they would do to anyone who spoke out against them. It wouldn't be an underling or someone that orbited the firm that would spill their innermost secrets, but someone who was extraordinarily close to the craze. Leslie Payne, the craze business manager, had spent nearly a month with Leonard Reed, providing information on the brothers and their business connections. Leslie Payne was loyal to the craze, however after they mistakenly believed that he was a police informant, they asked Jack McVitie to end his life. Jack's attempt failed, and fearing for his safety, this spurred Leslie Payne to go to the police in December 1967. In a 200-page report, written from a hotel room in London, the police had everything they needed, but now they had to prove it. Leonard Reed also spoke to Lenny Hamilton, who had been attacked, branded and struck with a meat tenderizer by Ronnie. He was only too happy to tell detectives everything that happened. One by one, former members of the Cray gang spoke up and told the detective superintendent about the murders. Even with the precautions the task force undertook, it wasn't long until the Crays were made aware of their investigation, but under the belief they were untouchable, the brothers gave it little thought. They considered the task force to be nothing more than a joke, and Reggie and Ronnie even purchased two pythons which they named Gerard and Nipper after the detectives who had worked on the hideaway court case. In an odd sense of foreboding, the two snakes proved impossible to handle, with one being returned to the previous owner and the other escaping. Detective Superintendent Reed had to walk a fine line between discreetly investigating the craze but ensuring his investigation couldn't be perceived as harassment. After the trial involving the hideaway club, Reggie and Ronnie could claim they were being victimised and all of the work Leonard Reed's team had carried out would be undone. With Leslie Payne out of the picture, an American, Alan Cooper, played more of an active role in the lives of the craze. He had helped them with the Canadian bonds they'd sold, through Alan Cooper, the craze again met with the American Mafia in New York during April 1968. The discussions went well, and Alan Cooper suggested that the craze should consider helping the Mafia assassinate a Maltese club owner they wanted dead. In a show of strength, they decided they would blow up his car with him inside it. Alan Cooper dispatched an associate, Paul Elvey, to fly to Glasgow to obtain the explosives. The man in question purchased the dynamite, however as he boarded the plane home, he was arrested and called in for questioning. Leonard Reed soon discovered that Paul Elvey was working for Alan Cooper, so he was also brought in to be questioned. In a strange twist, Alan Cooper was someone that Leonard Reed's supervisors were aware of. He was apparently working for the United States Treasury Department was attempting to get Reggie and Ronnie arrested on charges of attempted murder. Unable to use the courier, detectives instead decided that Alan Cooper should operate as an informant and the twins would implicate themselves through a recording device that he would have on his person. 
The Krays had no reason to doubt him as he had helped them obtain visas so they could travel to America. Informing the brothers that he was now confined to a hospital bed, he invited them for a chat, but as the twins had a gut feeling that something didn't feel quite right, they sent a go-between. Aware that Scotland Yard were watching their every move, the Krays took a step back from their business. Authorities had made little progress on the disappearances of Jack McVitie and George Cornell, and with the Richardsons and their gang out of the picture as they were either in jail or dead, the twins felt they just needed to sit tight. A month later in May, believing the heat was off and wanting to have a night on the town, Ronnie and Reggie and the rest of the firm headed to the Astor Club in Mayfair. They spent the evening drinking and left early the next morning on May 9th, 1968. At 6am, just before they managed to drift off to sleep, the front door of the flat was broken off its hinges and a crowd of armed policemen burst into their parents' home at Braithwaite House in Finsbury. The twins were placed in handcuffs and read their rights. Reggie and Ronnie weren't the only ones being arrested that morning. At the same time, across London's East End, over 100 armed police officers raided over 20 addresses and made numerous arrests for charges including conspiracy to murder, fraud and assault. There was no evidence linking the brothers to either of the murders at the time, but with the craze in police custody, maybe others would talk as this proved they were not untouchable. While awaiting trial, Reggie and Ronnie were held in Brixton Prison. Friends and family members dropped by, including their mother, who brought them sandwiches and the odd bottle of wine. They planned to get other members of the firm to admit the murders. Albert Donoghue would confess to the murder of Frank Mitchell, Jack Dixon would take the blame for the death of George Cornell, and Ronnie Hart would admit to killing Jack McVitie. Albert Donoghue didn't take too kindly to being asked to take the blame for a murder he didn't commit. In an attempt to highlight some of the perceived liberties they believed the authorities were taking, Reggie and Ronnie requested that all press restrictions on the trial be lifted. Initially, it looked like no one was going to talk. However, after a hearing at Old Street Magistrates Court in July 1968, the brothers' fears were being realised. In the preliminary hearing, they discovered that Lenny Dunn, whose flat had been used to hide Frank Mitchell, had given himself up. Billy Exley, who helped Frank Mitchell escape from Dartmoor and stood guard during the murder of George Cornell, testified against the twins, along with a barmaid at the Blind Beggar, who had previously received threats to keep her mouth shut, but as the twins were now behind bars, she explained that Ronnie and his minder Ian Barry had been involved. After the hearing, it was decided that the twins would remain in custody for the rest of the year. Before the trial, Albert Donoghue, who was being charged with murder, asked to speak to Detective Superintendent Reed. He said, I can tell you all about who did Mitchell, Cornell, McVitie, the lot. In the past, Albert Donoghue had been on the receiving end of Ronnie Cray's temper after being shot in the foot and was sure that the Crays would have him silenced, so he told the investigating officers everything. Further witnesses to step forward included Carol Skinner, who owned the flat in which Jack McVitie had been murdered. She had been too terrified to testify at the time, but with the craze in prison, she felt able to speak up. Police managed to locate the gun that had failed to go off before Jack McVitie was murdered, and Ronnie Hart, a member of the firm and distant cousin to the craze who had witnessed Jack McVitie's murder, was arrested and then gave a full statement about the events of that night. It was decided the case relating to the murder of Frank Mitchell would be tried separately later in the year. A trial was held at the Old Bailey on January 7, 1969, and Justice Melford Stevenson presided over the case. Ten men, either members of the firm or direct associates, were charged in connection with the murders of George Cornell and Jack McVitie. Ronnie Cray and Ian Barry were charged with the murder of George Cornell. Reggie and Ronnie Cray, Christopher and Tony Lambriano and Ronald Bender were charged with the murder of Jack McVitie. 
Reggie also faced charges of being an accessory to the murder of George Cornell. His brother Charlie, along with Freddie Foreman, Cornelius Whitehead and Anthony Barry were charged with being an accessory to the death of Jack McVitie. Cornelius Whitehead had worked as a driver for Ronnie and although he took no part in the murder, he was present at Evering Road along with a friend of the craze, Anthony Barry, who was also there when Jack McVitie died. The trial was big news in the tabloids, and celebrities either attended the proceedings or sent the twins good luck telegrams. Seats in the public gallery were being auctioned off for £5 on the black market, with many seeing it as the trial of the century. Although the craze and their associates remained steadfast, denying each of the charges against them, it was becoming clear that the prosecution had a strong case. Ronnie Hart and John Dixon gave evidence on behalf of the prosecution in return for escaping any prison time. Lenny Hamilton also testified after he was sent a letter in prison by the craze who threatened to kill his children if he spoke up. The barmaid from the blind beggar gave evidence and pointed out the man she saw killed George Cornell. Tensions were high, as in one instance Reggie shouted, the police are scum, when they relayed details of Francis's death. When it was discovered that police held his grandparents' pension books, Ronnie called one of the prosecutors a fat slob. After all the evidence had been presented, the jury retired to consider his verdict. At that time, it was the longest murder trial in English legal history, but on March 4, 1969, after 6 hours and 54 minutes, the jury reached a decision. Guilty. Overall, 28 witnesses gave evidence against the craze and members of the firm. On March 8, 1969, the judge, Mr Justice Stevenson, addressed the twins and said, I am not going to waste my words on you. In my view, society has earned a rest from your activities. I sentence you to life imprisonment, which I recommend should be no less than 30 years. Ian Barry was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Christopher and Tony Lambriano both received 15 years. Charlie Cray and Freddie Foreman were both sentenced to 10 years for disposing of Jack McVitie's corpse, along with Cornelius Whitehead, who received 7 years. Anthony Barry was the only defendant to be found not guilty. On April 15, 1969, a second trial took place for the murder of Frank Mitchell. Although it was a compelling case, no one could say for sure who actually murdered Frank, so the Cray brothers and their associates were found not guilty. The only charge that did stick was that of harbouring a criminal, of which Reggie was found guilty. Further five years were added to his sentence, which would run concurrently. The judge ordered that any charges relating to their further criminal conduct lie on file. In his book Respect, and a television documentary in 2000, Freddie Foreman would later admit he was the one who shot Frank Mitchell. Despite his admission, and after being interviewed by police, no further action was taken. So where are we now? There are still rumours that surround the death of Frances Shea. Her relationship with Reggie didn't last long, but neither one of them sought a divorce. Was she murdered? There are many theories about what happened, but one has yet to be proven aside from the unsubstantiated claims and gossip that fill the corners of internet chat rooms. Leonard Nipper-Reed served as National Coordinator of Regional Crime Squads and Assistant Chief Constable in Nottingham before his retirement. He received a Queen's Police Medal for gallant or distinguished service in the police force. He was interviewed and couldn't understand why the craze had garnered so much attention. These people are, are suddenly heroes when in fact they were really, really wicked villains. Make no mistake about it. After serving seven years, Charlie Cray was released from prison in 1975. He protested his innocence, claiming he had nothing to do with the disposal of Jack McVitie's body. In July 1997, he was arrested for conspiracy to smuggle cocaine. 
He died behind bars on April 4th, 2000, and his brother Reggie gave a brief statement to the press after the ceremony. He's the friendliest of people, and um, well, I'm sure that everyone who gathered here today would like to see everyone more friendly towards each other, more so than ever, because he's a very friendly person. After their sentence, Reggie Cray was sent to Parkhurst on the Isle of Wight, and Ronnie was held in Durham. They remained apart for three years. Their mother campaigned continually to have them reunited, and in early April 1972, Ronnie was transferred to Parkhurst. His time there wasn't without incident, as after a number of violent outbursts, he was eventually transferred to Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital in Berkshire. Without fail come rain or shine, Violet Cray would visit her boys twice a week until her death in August 1982. The funeral was held in Chingford on August 11th, and both Reggie and Ronnie were permitted to attend. It was the first time the twins had been seen in public for nearly a decade, and a huge crowd of reporters gathered outside as the funeral turned into a media frenzy. Violet Cray died the day before her 73rd birthday, still fighting to get parole for her notorious twins, the gangsters who were sentenced to 30 years each in 1969 for murder. Violet was a popular East End figure, as shown by the carloads of reeds and mourners that arrived at her council flat this morning. Her husband Charles led the family mourners with elder son Charlie close behind. The twins were at the church ahead of them. Ronnie was first, now classified as criminally insane, and serving out his sentence in Broadmoor, where he paints and writes poetry. Then came Reggie, also handcuffed from the maximum security wing at Parkhurst, where a few months ago he tried to kill himself. At the end of the short service, the twins were taken back to their cells without having seen their mother buried. Reggie was the first to leave. He's not due to be released until 1999. And so Violet Cray was buried as her beloved twins would have wished, but not seen, with hundreds of grieving friends and relations paying their last respects. And another chapter in this extraordinary family history was closed. Reggie and Ronnie's father died the following year, although the twins didn't attend his funeral, fearing what the publicity might do. Although Ronnie remained in Broadmoor, he still managed to operate some of the Cray's business enterprises with his brothers after some business cards were found amongst his things. Even with Ronnie in a psychiatric hospital and Reggie in jail, it was believed they were operating a bodyguard protection service called Crayley Enterprise with their brother Charlie who had since been released from prison. Ronnie Cray was married twice while he was hospitalised. The first was to a woman called Elaine Mildner. The couple had developed a relationship after they began writing letters to one another. They split up after only four years together in 1989. Ronnie's second marriage was to a woman called Kate Howard in a ceremony at Broadmoor Hospital during November of that same year. But the couple divorced in 1994. Ronnie Cray died a year later on March 17, 1995, after suffering a heart attack. He was 61 years old. A funeral was held and Reggie was granted leave to attend. An enormous crowd gathered outside to greet him. After the ceremony, the press briefly spoke to him about his brother. Well, he's a good brother and he's very loyal and he's very generous. Um, he had lots of nice ways about him and I um, should always remember him. Um, with good memories, you know. And, um, uh, I know he's at peace. That's the main thing. You know, he's at peace. So his friends at peace. So I'm pleased with that. Led on by Frankie Fraser, crowds cheered for Reggie as he left to go back to prison. Reggie's brother Charlie spoke to a reporter after the ceremony. The one thing I would love people to remember who, don't, who say bad things in life, remember he had an illness and if it wasn't for that, he would have been a different person. The press also spoke about Ronnie Cray to author, journalist and convicted armed robber John McVicker 
They weren't liked at the time. They were certainly respected and feared, but they weren't liked. There won't be too many tears shed about the demise of, of, of Ronnie Cray. I would say great funeral, shame about the life. John McVicker also spoke about Ronnie's mental state. He would see messages from television. He would talk that people were out to kill him. He would see threat everywhere. And this is what made him so ferocious and so dangerous because from a quite innocuous sort of remark or glance, suddenly Cray would, Ronnie Cray would turn on someone. Believe me, he's reckoned to have sliced up more people than most people have uh, cut up Sunday joints. Reggie Cray, a Category A prisoner, was moved between a number of prisons up and down the country. These included Parkhurst, Leicester, Longlarton, Wandsworth, Gartry, Lewes, Nottingham, Blunderstone, Maidstone and Wayland. He spent some of his time painting and donated the pictures to charity. While inside, he also found God and became a born-again Christian. He married Roberta Jones in July 1997. Reggie Cray was refused parole during 1998 as the parole board explained he had failed to complete relevant offending behaviour work, failed to undertake a full psychological assessment and there were concerns that he was manipulative and devious. The board had also explained that he had been drinking alcohol in his cell and had resisted his change to a Category C prisoner. His solicitor said the board's claims were factually incorrect. He said, in reality, Mr. Cray is unable to resist any prison transfer as that is a matter solely within the remit of the prison service. He has no disciplinary findings recorded against him in respect of alcohol. He has indicated a willingness to complete any course or any work required of him and he was assessed by two psychiatrists and two psychologists specifically for the purpose of this parole review. The concerns that Mr. Cray was manipulative and devious were made without any basis in evidence. After being diagnosed with inoperable cancer, Reggie Cray was released from prison on compassionate grounds during August 2000 and spent the final weeks of his life with his wife, Roberta. The Home Office is releasing Reggie Cray on compassionate grounds. His former associates have long campaigned for his freedom. The prison staff are gone from Reggie Cray's bedside at this hospital in Norwich, but for now he will not be returning to his roots in the east end of London to spend his final days. Reggie Cray was last seen in public at his brother Charlie's funeral in April, already marked by the cancer of the bladder which is now inoperable and which prevents him from being moved. Reginald Cray passed away in his sleep on September 1st, 2000. He was 66 years old. It was the East End funeral that Reggie Cray had planned in his prison cell. Free at last was the message spelled out in flowers, reflecting 31 years served for the murder of a fellow gangster. Many of Cray's friends and former associates were present to make sure everything went to his plan. Six black horses led the cortege through Bethnal Green along streets the craze once ruled with fear. With modern-day EastEnders lining the route to witness the passing of an era, the procession moved onto Valence Road, the birthplace of the craze story. It was here that the Cray twins, Ronnie and Reggie, their older brother Charlie, were brought up by a doting East End mother. In the family's tiny terraced house, they ran their empire of crime, extortion and protection rackets. The Cray's house has long since been demolished, but across the world, Valence Road will always be remembered for its one-time gangster residence. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast provider. Have you ever wondered how someone can just disappear, leaving no trace behind? I'm Marissa, and I'm the host of The Vanished, which is a podcast dedicated to spreading awareness about missing persons cases. In each episode, I share these stories with the help of the loved ones who are still looking for answers. 
In episodes 114 and 115, I covered the disappearance of seven-month-old Christopher Abeda, who was kidnapped from his crib on July 15, 1986. You'll get to hear from his older sister Denise, who was just 15 years old at the time. She has vivid memories of Christopher in the hours leading up to his disappearance. We were all sitting around the living room, and Christopher had taken literally his first steps around the coffee table. The next morning, she awoke to find her mom frantically searching the house for baby Christopher. I remember my mom, I heard her voice before I saw her, but I heard her say, where's Christopher? Christopher, he's not here. Where's Christopher? And then she pushed open my door. My mom goes down the stairs and she literally falls down the stairs. Christopher's mom was diagnosed with terminal cancer in 2016 and passed away last year without ever knowing what happened to her baby. She'd never given up looking, and now Denise is carrying on the fight. Knowing what my mom did for 32 years, I will not let her time go to waste. Find The Vanished on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, thevanishedpodcast.com, or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.